0: Listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. The Word of the Lord, as written in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I ran across a great story last week that I could totally relate to. 1987, Gary and Terry were married. They didn't have a lot of money, and so as Terry's birthday is coming up, Uh, Gary is trying to figure out what, what can I do to love her, to show how much I appreciate her. We don't have a lot, and Terry helpfully took the initiative and told Gary, look, all I really want for my birthday is some turtlenecks. Okay, 1987, so go along with it. I just want three turtlenecks, red, white, and yellow. And Gary's like, oh, this is awesome. I can do this. I know what size she is. I know what color she wants. I'm going to be the hero. So her birthday comes and Gary's all excited for her to open up these uh, presents and Terry opens up the first one and she looks at it and she says, honey, this is not white, this is cream. Hold it up to your white t-shirt, it's not the same color, is it? And Gary's like, "Ah, uh, okay, I guess. She pulls the next one out and she goes, I love you, sweetheart, this is goldenrod. When I said yellow, I meant like canary yellow. And Gary's thinking, like, I did not know birds were the standard for color matching. Okay, third one's coming up, and you can anticipate where this is going, right? She pulls the third one out, the red one, and she says, honey, this is maroon. I wanted red, like, you know, blood red. And Gary says he's thinking, like, the blood that's pounding in my head right now, right? Gary's expectation was, look, I'm going to get these gifts and my wife says she wants, and I'm going to be the hero, and she's going to be so appreciative, and... Terry's expectation was, I made it as simple for him as I possibly could, I told him exactly what to get, and they both had expectations that led to frustration and disappointment. I mean, you guys know what that is like, right? Our younger son, Daniel, uh, had this great idea, saw an online ad for a hand-painted, high-quality glasses holder that he was going to get for Amelia for her reading glasses. And she opens it up on Christmas and it's like two pieces of cardboard stuck together. And this was $20. (laughs) And we all just laugh about it, right? Here's what it looked like online. Here's what they told me it was going to be. And it's like Dollar Tree reject. The job that seemed so exciting. It was going to be fulfilling. It was going to, you know, you're going to meet all these wonderful people and you get into it and it's just, it's a grind and it's hard, right? And you've had disappointments in relationships and in romance and, and all of those things. That's just life. But what do we do when it's God that we're disappointed with? When God does something that we don't like or we don't expect or doesn't make sense? Have you ever had that happen? I mean, if you have a pulse, the answer is yes, right? You you prayed, and you tried to do what you thought was right. You you thought you were listening to God. You asked Him to do something that seemed perfectly reasonable and right, and none of it happened. You you did what you thought God wanted, and it blew up in your face. It it went terribly, and, and you're left wondering, what was that? God, I I thought I understood you, I thought I knew what you wanted, don't you care? Why are you doing this? Why are you not answering this prayer that just seems so good and so obvious? And that's what's going on in this story in Matthew chapter 11 that we're looking at today. People have all these ideas about what God is like and what he should be doing and what it looks like when he shows up and starts working and, and then God does something different. And they're frustrated, they're disappointed, they're confused. And what do you do with that? What does Jesus say to us in, in that place of frustrated expectations and confusion? That's what we want to see from Matthew chapter 11 today. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles. You can pull out one of those uh, black Bibles from the seats in front of you, uh, it's on page 969 in this Bible. We're starting a new section in Matthew's story of Jesus' life today. We've been following Jesus as he's been teaching about the arrival, his inauguration of God's kingdom, God's rule, God's presence in this world. And he's going around the villages of Galilee and Israel, teaching and healing and uh, performing miracles and, and not just talking about the kingdom, but bringing it into reality as He heals people as a sign of God's care and power and presence and transformation. Because Jesus says he's come to inaugurate the rule, the presence of God in this world and in our lives. And that kingdom expands and and grows as more people encounter it it. And it brings joy and life to us as we enter into it. But because Jesus is bringing a kingdom and he's a king, he's also calling us to put ourselves under his leadership, under his control, his direction in our lives. And and as people encounter Jesus and his teaching, some are excited and some are confused and some are offended at the idea of needing to humble ourselves before him. Some are interested and Matthew wants to see us to see ourselves in all those responses and in these people, that, that we're wrestling with the same questions. Who is Jesus? and what do I do with him? And our passage today focuses on answering that question in the context of unmet expectations, of disappointment. And I think what Matthew wants us to take away is this: that our response to disappointment is shaped by who we think Jesus is. Our response to disappointment is shaped by who we think Jesus is. Let's get into the text. Matthew says, Jesus has gone around instructing his disciples, and he goes on to teach and preach in the cities. And when John heard about, in prison, the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? So Jesus commissions and empowers his disciples to go do what he has been doing. He's brought them into life with him and now sent them out to live the same kind of life. And so the word about Jesus is spreading and it gets to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a crucially important person in Jesus' life. Their families were closely connected to one another and John is commissioned by God to begin this renewal movement calling people to turn away from sinful rebellion to God to confess their sins and to prepare for the coming, the arrival of the Messiah, the anointed one who will bring about God's kingdom. That message offends some people like Herod Antipas, the, the Roman appointed ruler of that area, and he puts John in prison, and not just like a county jail, but a dungeon. And John hears these reports about what Jesus is doing, and he sends some of his followers to ask, are you the one that we were expecting, or should we be looking for someone else? Now, do you see what's going on here? John believes in Jesus as much as anyone, and he hears what Jesus is doing, and he doesn't think, oh, that totally makes sense. I totally see what Jesus is doing. No, it's the exact opposite. He questions whether Jesus really is the Messiah because of what Jesus is doing. John stands in this long line of prophets announcing that God is going to send his Messiah, his anointed one, to bring about peace and right on the world by overthrowing God's enemies and raising his people up to prominence and security. The Messiah is going to bring peace by bringing down the hammer, right? And what has Jesus been doing? He's cleansing lepers. He's giving sight to the blind. He's telling people to pray for their enemies and and love them and forgive people who persecute them. John hears what Jesus is doing and and he's clearly thinking, this does not make sense. This does not fit. This isn't what the Messiah is like. Look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. That's Jesus' answer. Clear as always, right? Makes perfect sense. What is that about? Jesus is giving a summary of what he's been up to. Okay? You remember when we were back in chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel, or maybe you're just familiar with it, when, when Jesus starts this passage, we call the Sermon on the Mount, and it's this picture of all of the outsiders and the spiritual zeros and the nobodies who are now actually invited to come and be in God's kingdom and in fact Jesus says you're blessed when you recognize that you're spiritually broken and morally bankrupt because now you're in a place where you can receive God's help and see what he will do and and now then Jesus goes on from there to show what that kingdom looks like when he shows up by all these miracles of healing and restoration and transformation because each of those examples is drawn from prophecies in Isaiah's message about the great day when God will visit his people with salvation and judgment. And so look at what Jesus is saying in verse 6, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble, who does not fall away, who is not offended by me. Because John is thinking, look, I I thought you were going to come and clean house, right? That's what the Messiah does. You're going to deliver God's faithful people, but I'm in prison. And you're having dinner parties with tax collectors. And Jesus says, John, I am the one, but the kingdom may look different than what you expected and blessed are you blessed is anyone who can look beyond what they thought god was supposed to be doing to see what he's actually doing blessed is anyone who does not stumble who's not offended by me and jesus is not rebuking john but John is struggling, do you see, because he's got a story in his head of what God is like and what he's supposed to be doing in the world and in my life, and he's not doing it. And he's clearly rocked enough by it that he asks Jesus, Did I get you wrong? Am I backing the wrong horse here? John's going through what I think all of us have experienced at some point in our lives it raises a big question for us. Who is the Jesus that John is hoping in? Who is the Jesus that I'm hoping in? Because John wouldn't be asking the question if he didn't hope in Jesus. That's why he's puzzled. Jesus, I I trust you, but I'm confused. And that's true of us too, right? Our hope may be in Jesus, but in another sense, our hope often is also in what we expect Jesus to be doing and what it will look like when he's at work in, in my life or in the world or in people around me. My hope is in Jesus, but but in a, a Jesus who kind of underwrites my plans and, and my expectations, a, a Jesus who guarantees the right outcome. Because our response to disappointment is shaped by who we think Jesus is. See, there there are times w- when our expectations are just not met and we're able to say, oh yeah, it's disappointing, that's life, right? I mean, that's the way it goes. But there are other times when things happen and, and it's a crisis, it's a real challenge for us. It's devastating. And it, it doesn't even have to be some big obvious thing. I mean, sometimes th- those things get triggered by just even the, maybe a the small offhand comment that somebody makes. But, it, but it goes to this deep sensitive part of your spirit or something that happens at work, somebody that you thought loved you or somebody that you trusted, you find out they're actually a totally different person when they're not around you. And and we often don't understand how significant those expectations are until they're disappointed. It's kind of like Star Wars. Uh, In the summer of 1999, any of you guys remember that uh, it had uh, been a long time for any of us who had grown up on Star Wars, right? The original trilogy, and, and many of us grew up playing with the toys and uh, acting out the stories, and, uh, and, and then finally there's going to be a new Star Wars movie after 16 years. And we go into the theater with all this excitement of this anticipation. And we come out of the theater thinking, I waited a decade and a half for Jar Jar Binks. (laughs) Right? So many people had this really meaningful experience of the Star Wars universe growing up. And and maybe didn't even realize you had that high of an expectation for it. or, Or it was that significant to you until you get that thing. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And then 2015 comes along. And once again, you hear, oh, there's going to be another new trilogy. And and by that point, a lot of people just said, you know what, I'm just going to expect that it's going to be lame, and then I won't be disappointed if it is. And sure enough, it was. It was pretty lame. You know, there are all kinds of expectations that we know that we have, and then there are expectations that we only realize we have until they're not met. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to what's really stirring up inside of us when things don't go the way that we had hoped or planned. Maybe you have expectations that you didn't even realize until something comes along that threatens them or challenges them or or blows them up. You have a friend or a family member, a partner, maybe, maybe a pastor. And something they say or they do is is a letdown. It's hurtful. It's disappointing. And you wonder, why? What's going on here? There's an expectation that's being exposed in hardship that I wasn't even really aware of. Unexpected disappointment or suffering has a way of revealing these expectations. And it's the same in following Jesus. We... Don't realize that we're banking on Jesus to to solve all our problems, to make life work out, to guarantee the outcome until things fall apart. And then suddenly, we find ourselves in a place where maybe we're offended by Jesus. We're confused. We're scandalized by him, by what he's doing, by what he's allowing, by what he's not doing. And that's the space that John is in. That, that shows us our response to disappointment is often shaped by who I think Jesus is. And it's a message for us to wrestle with. Why, why do I follow him if there's no guarantee that Jesus is going to solve my problems and make life work out the right way for me? Let's let that question hang because we want to come back to it later. See what Jesus has to say about that. Let's go back to verse 7. John's disciples leave, and Jesus starts to talk to the, the people around about John. He doesn't have anything negative at all to say about him. Look at this. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That's classic Jesus, right? He loves using all these word pictures and images, Here's what he's getting at. What did you go out in the wilderness? What did you think you were going to see when you went out to see John in the wilderness? A, a pushover? Somebody who uh, craves, uh, somebody who conforms to people's expectations? Somebody who tells people what they want to hear? Anyone who lives in the desert and eats insects and wild honey is clearly not living by other people's expectations. This guy is not a people pleaser, right? No. Did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No, people like that live in mansions, in king's houses, Jesus says. Did you go out to see somebody, in other words, who was a success, who had it all figured out, who had life working for them, and their life was just uh, money and wealth and comfort and ease and, and everything that you know, would, would make life feel good for us, like it was working? No, John clearly is not offering you a life of ease and comfort. So what did you go to see, Jesus asked, a prophet? Yes, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, and and here he's quoting the prophet Malachi. I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Uh, In fact, uh, it's actually a prophecy of God saying what will happen when he shows up, when the Lord comes to this earth truly i tell you among those born of women there's not been one greater than john yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he he's saying john is, is was one of the most unique and privileged people of all times because he plays this pivotal role where he is the prophet foretold by all the other prophets who announces the great day of god's entry into this world that heaven and earth are actually going to meet and be reunited. But John is going to die never actually seeing the ultimate fulfillment of that. And anyone who follows Jesus, what an amazing invitation, is more privileged than John because we will actually get to see Jesus bringing God's kingdom into this world. But does that kingdom look like what we expect? Listen to how Jesus goes on to picture it in verse 12. From the days of John until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, this can actually be read and interpreted in a couple of different ways, and it's a somewhat debated saying of Jesus. I think what he's getting at is this, though. Ever since Jesus showed up on this scene, there's been growing opposition from Bible teachers and religious leaders, from Herod Antipas, who places John in prison. And and Jesus, of course, is going to meet violent opposition from uh, an empire that does not want to hear about other kings or kingdoms. But Jesus says, do not take that violent opposition to mean that somehow things are going wrong or, or the plan has gone off track. Because in verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to ear, let him hear. Now he's quoting again from Malachi a little bit later, saying that a prophet like Elijah, or perhaps even Elijah himself, would come before the Lord shows up on this earth to turn people's hearts in the right direction and prepare them to hear and receive the message of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying Are you willing to open your ears and listen to me instead of your expectations of me? Instead of what you think I should be like or what I should be doing? Because Jesus does not do the things that we think he ought to be doing often. He does things that disturb us, that frustrate us, that confuse us. And and, and our response to that disappointment is shaped by who we think Jesus is. Well, that, that's what he pictures in this last section here, this great picture in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. I, I think it's, I think Jesus is creating this picture of uh, like kids running around kind of wild in the marketplace and they're playing a tune and saying, here's happy music, so celebrate and dance and throw some coins in my hat. But the people aren't going along with it they're not dancing nobody dances and nobody's into it or or it's like professional mourners in that culture who are playing this sad song and nobody's joining in with the mourning like they think they ought to and again i think it's this it's this picture of jesus saying people have all kinds of expectations of what god is like and jesus and john are not dancing to their tune and so they're angry, they're offended. He's saying, you know, John came and, and he didn't have dinner parties and, and he wasn't eating or drinking. He went out in the desert, he ate insects, and you all said he's a religious wacko, right? Like he's too strict. John, lighten up, okay? And here I am, Jesus says, the Messiah, and I come eating and drinking and having dinner parties and celebrating God's grace to prostitutes and tax collectors, and you call me a drunk and a friend of sinners, you guys are never satisfied. What, what, is it, what, what do you want God to be? What is it that you are looking for? But wisdom, he says, is proved right by her deeds. Ah, you know, Leave it to Jesus to finish with another little cryptic statement. I, I think he's echoing back this uh, image from Proverbs 1 and, and Proverbs 8, the, the figure of wisdom personified. And he's pointing out that wisdom is not knowing a bunch of things. Wisdom is taking what we hear and receive and learn from God and actually living it out, how it actually plays out in my life. He's saying, look, if you think I'm not the one because I'm not doing what you expect, then then just hang around and watch and look and see what I do and, and what I am like and who I am. Because I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is here. This is actually the God of Israel at work in the world through me. For those who have eyes to see, you'll see that. You you can look at me and see who I am and what I'm about. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Which seems kind of an odd way to end this. Since John is going to be beheaded by Herod and Jesus is going to die on a cross. And almost all of his disciples end up being martyred for following him. And just like people in Jesus' day, we look at things like that and take those as signs of failure. Failure. How how is that wisdom being proved right by her deeds? How is that God at work in the world? And Jesus says, look, pay attention. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Look, listen, and you will see this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what it's like when God shows up. Because our response to disappointment, to confusion, to frustrated expectations is shaped by who we think Jesus is. You know, for some, Jesus is the enforcer who's supposed to come and beat up all the bad guys. You know, in their context, it was the Romans and the people that collaborated with them. In our day, depending on wherever you stand, it's a different set of political or cultural enemies or battles to fight. And and getting rid of those people means God will bring the good times in, right? Like the only thing keeping us from having the kingdom of God and the good days is those people and Jesus doesn't seem serious enough about how we need to deal with those people who are the problem he's not grim and disapproving and angry enough at other people's sins like we are and for other people Jesus seems too serious and narrow but because he's calling us to repent to change our mind in the direction of our lives He's calling us to humble ourselves before God, and he says life is found only in knowing me. And he calls us to mourn over sin and brokenness, but who wants to hear that, right? Jesus, why are you so serious? I mean, what I'd really like is a Messiah who tells me to love myself exactly the way I am, and I don't need to change a thing because I'm just perfect right here and right now. And Jesus has a different mission. He doesn't fit into those boxes. He is God entering into our story. God's love, God's power, God's kindness. To suffer our pain and experience the consequences of our brokenness and and our sin. And he's going to conquer our real enemy. The evil that has messed up our hearts and messed up the world and he's actually going to let that evil exhaust itself on him and kill him and that's not failure that's the father's work that is god's love and power entering our story experiencing and taking on himself our pain and the consequences of our sin in order to conquer our real enemy the evil that has wrapped itself into our hearts and our lives and by letting that evil exhaust itself and kill him he will actually win Because the only way for God to ultimately help us and bring his kingdom into reality in our lives and in this world is for God to step into the story, to take the weight of our sin on himself and die in our place. Because he is God and and death cannot ultimately defeat him. So Jesus raises, he rises from the dead. And his resurrection opens up a new possibility of life and change for all of us. For everyone, anyone who will trust in him and follow him. Because God's power and God's love and God's truth in Jesus get the final word in our lives and in this world doesn't look the way it's going to one day because jesus says the rest of the story is he's actually going to come back again and then the world will look like what it should and then everything will work the right way but it's not that way now and that's what causes us to wrestle and question and struggle many of you know my brother brad um a little over a year ago, was diagnosed with an inoperable pancreatic cancer. He started going through chemo and, and made progress and then got the news that the tumor was dead. It was still in there, but, but it was dead. And, and we all rejoiced and we celebrated. And, and my brother, who didn't know if he was going to be able to get to his daughter's wedding in the beginning of December, we were dancing and celebrating. And then less than a month ago, he got the news that the tumor has come back. And now he's starting chemo again. And I want to tell you, my brother's question is not why do I have cancer, but he's wrestling with real questions like, why would God stop the impact that he's having through me in in ministry in the local jail? Why would he he take away Bible studies and pastoral care for people in nursing homes? Why would he take a pastor away from their church that he pastors down in Shelbyville, His, his, his wife's? first husband died of cancer why would he make my wife a widow again by cancer and grieve my children whatever it's going to mean to follow Jesus it's not the key to success in your life Jesus is not saying come follow me and all your problems will be fixed and everything will be wonderful sunshine and roses from here to glory Oh, following Jesus means there is joy and wonder and times of rejoicing and amazement at what God is doing that our hearts are just overflowing and we couldn't even imagine anything greater or better than than what God is doing right now in this moment. And, And then those sometimes are matched in following Jesus by times that are tragic and painful and difficult because That's life in a broken world and that was John's experience and that was Jesus' experience and that's his disciples' experience because he invites us to find life by laying down what we think is going to give us life in order to have him and to find a richer, deeper, truer life. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus for you and what do you expect of him? Why would you follow him? Show me any other religion, any other philosophy, any other worldview, any other leader at its heart that has a God who is so utterly in love with and kind and committed to every person that he has created that he would go to a cross for them. That he would take their sin and rebellion on himself and die for them in order to love them and save them and rescue them. Jesus died for our sins so that in knowing him, we could have life and have new life. Show me anyone other than Jesus that has the, the wisdom, the grace, the beauty, the kindness, the compassion, the mercy. How can I not follow Jesus when I see him? I don't know why my dreams and hopes and why your dreams and hopes and prayers don't necessarily come true in the way that we want. I don't know why Jesus doesn't just solve all our problems for us. But we can rule out one thing with certainty. It is not because Jesus doesn't know or Jesus doesn't care or Jesus isn't at work. It's not because Jesus isn't trustworthy. Somebody who doesn't love you, somebody who doesn't care, somebody who is not involved in your life is not the person that takes your sin on their shoulders and dies for you to raise you to life and forgive you and give you hope. So whatever Jesus is calling us into, he's calling us into hope, he's calling us into life, he's also inviting us to take up a cross like the one that he carried in order to follow him and find life, but also to find resurrection. And when we see that that's what Jesus is about, that frees us. You see, it actually frees us to put our hope in Jesus himself, not in the dreams and the plans and the desires of our hearts, as good and as as right as they may be. It forces us to put our hope in Jesus, not in what we hope or think our life will turn out like. And, and it also then frees us, it opens us up to what Jesus could actually do in our lives that are not in our script, that are things we would never have chosen the things that we would not ask for in a million years. But how many times for so many of us can we look back on them now and say, I can see how God actually did something good out of that. Because he transforms those things and he works through those things because that's the kind of savior he is. Because I know if I'm in the hands of someone who loves me and someone who laid down his life for me, it allows me to live in a place of peace and trust and confidence no matter what happens in my life, no matter what disappointments, no matter what expectations are frustrated. Because I see a Jesus who is bigger than all of that and who offers me what the fulfillment of those desires could never themselves actually offer. Jesus is worth it. Trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you know our hearts. You know what we long for. You know the desires. And for so many of us, the painful experiences we've gone through of unmet desires and unanswered prayers and confusion and disappointment. Oh, Jesus, help us to see that you are good in all those things and you are bigger and you are better and you are worth following. Because we're going to go through hard times no matter what and we get to choose whether we go through them with you or without you. Oh, Jesus, help us to say we want to go through them with you because We love you and we trust you. A God who would die for us to forgive us and who raises from the dead to give us new life and new hope and to change. Oh, change us as we walk with you and as we trust in you and hope in you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.